Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. And I'm going to take the time to read the entire first and second chapter of the letter to the Hebrews. We'll be focusing on the latter part of chapter 2, but there's so much in chapter 1 that plays into it, we should have it fresh in our minds at least. Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there's a place where someone has testified, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But... 
we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for every one. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people." Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, the fellowship this week has been refreshing. The ministry of your word has been both enlightening and refreshing. It's been a good time and we thank you for it. And once again now we turn our attention to your word. But we do so with a keen sense of our dependence upon you for it. We ask that your spirit would pursue your word and own it to our hearts. And we pray that this evening we would gain a fresh appreciation of the Lord Jesus. Give us a firmer faith in him and help us to love him more. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. The title of the message this evening is Cordeus Homo. That, of course, as many of you will know, is the title of a work in Latin by Anselm of Canterbury, the 11th century theologian, the Archbishop of Canterbury. He wrote the book Cordeus Homo to answer the question, why God-man? Or, translate a little bit more freely, why did God become man? What was the purpose of the incarnation? And of course then, that title then is gathering up into it much of what the scriptures have to teach about the person of Jesus Christ, that he is both God and man. And the question taken up in the book is, why did God become man? There are many passages through the scriptures, of course, that deal with the two natures of Jesus. We have a wonderful exposition of it in John chapter 1, where we have the one who was forever the word of God and equal with God, the one who from eternity is God. He became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. 
We have expressions like in Colossians chapter 2, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. The great exposition, of course, is Philippians chapter 2, where he who was in the form of God did not think it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took on him the form of a servant and humbled himself, took the form of a man and was obedient to death even the death of the cross. We have other ex expressions of it, like in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he who was rich for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. You remember this was the question that Jesus posed to the Pharisees. He says, you've heard of the Messiah, whose son is he? Well, that's an easy question. He's David's son. Jesus says, that's right. But then how did David call him Lord? How would David call his son Lord? And of course, the only answer they could give is the one that they wouldn't give. And that he is both David's son and David's Lord. He is both God and man. And of course, there have been many, many heresies that have entered the church from the very beginning that have made their way in distorting one side or the other of this equation, that he is both God and man. And we've been taught, and rightly so, through the creeds to express very well what the scriptures teach us, that he is very God of very God, and he is very man of very man. Truly, all that God is, Jesus is. And truly, all that man is, Jesus is that also. This is the wonder of the incarnation. That's the word we use to describe that an incarnation the enfleshment if you will of the second person of the eternal Godhead and what we find in the scriptures then is that the life of the second person of the eternal Godhead did not begin in the manger that was just the beginning of the human phase of his existence and again, the word that captures all of this is the word incarnation. And Anselm's question is simply, why? Why did God become man? Why the incarnation? And I suppose perhaps better than any other book in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews answers that, I think, more fully than any other. In chapter 1, the writer begins with this long expression of the glories of Christ, expressing his full deity in one way or another. He begins by expressing the fact that Jesus is the climax of God's self-revelation. God has spoken to us in times past, here and there among the fathers in various ways. He has revealed himself to us. But now, in these last days, he's spoken to us by none other than his own son. And the whole point of that is this is necessarily the climax of God's self-revelation because this is, in fact, God. God speaking. That's the point you remember in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John takes this title for him, the Word. He is God speaking. 
in Jesus, not just in what he says, but in all that he says and all that he does in his whole life. He is God speaking. He's God making himself known. And the point here starts with that. This is the climax of divine revelation because this is, in fact, God himself making himself known to us. And just to push that point, then, he works his way through this entire first chapter, stressing the point in one way or another. In verses 1 through 3, he's the final and climactic self-revelation of God. Verse 3, he is God's very self-expression. And so, verse 4, it is not surprising that he is superior to the angels. Glorious as angels are, dwelling in the very presence of God. Veiled eyes, veiled feet, with wings ready to do his bidding, glorious beings, holy ones. But as glorious as they are, they don't have the superiority that is, belongs only to the Lord Jesus. He's called, after all, verses 5 and 6, not just an angel, he's the son. To which of the angels does God ever give that title to? This is his own son. He has a higher name. And so, in verse 6, angels, and then, of course, we also, are commanded to worship him. This is one who is so high and so supreme and so holy that even angels must bow before him. Verses 7 and 8, he pushes further. Angels are created beings. They are created to be God's servant. But Christ, by contrast, the Son, possesses the throne of God itself, and that from eternity. Verse 10, he's the creator. In verse 8, 9, again in verse 11 and 12, he tells us over and again that Jesus possesses God's attributes of righteousness, eternality, immutability. All of these divine attributes, he says, belong to the Lord Jesus. In verse 8, and then again in verse 10, God himself addresses him as God and as Lord. And all of this then constitutes a call to worship Jesus as the supreme, all-glorious God, perfect in his deity, fully God in every sense. And so we must worship him. And all of that in the background in chapter 1 makes the theme of chapter 2 all the more stunning. In chapter 2, he takes up the question of Jesus' incarnation, and he takes up specifically the why. Why did Jesus become man? Why did this one who is superior to the angels, this one whom angels worship, this one who is God himself, why did he become man? And notice the terms of condescension that he uses here, he stacks them up, piles them up one on another just to emphasize the reality of Jesus' true incarnation. This was no illusion. This is not some like, like some Greek myth where the gods would disguise themselves for a little while and then at the critical moment when things got difficult for them, expose themselves for who they are and some great show of power. No, this was a real 
incarnation. And notice how he stresses that. Verse 9, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, tasting death. Verse 11, we find again another expression. The one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. What does that mean? The same family of humanity. And so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. And then verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Now, I really prefer here the older King James translation of this verse. It's a little bit awkward, but the original here is, is rather awkward as well. He piles up the language. You remember how the uh, King James translates this? Uh, his, because the children have flesh and blood, he himself also likewise partook of the same. He himself also likewise took part of the same. It works it over. And that's the idea here that he's stressing that Whatever it is that man is, he became that, really. He took blood and flesh. Now, we have it translated in all the versions, flesh and blood. I don't know why. It doesn't make any difference, but it's just always been a curiosity for me. He took blood and flesh. Blood and flesh. This stuff. That's what he became. This one whom angels worship. He became really what we are, fully. And so, verse 14 again, the idea stressed further with the note that he died. And then verse 17, for this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way. Whatever it is we are, that is what this great second person of the Godhead became. It was a condescension like no other. Now, all of this comes in the context of chapter five, uh, 2, verses 5 and following, which on first reading and at the first part of the passage is intended to stress the dignity of humanity. You'll notice that again if you look, glance through verses 5 and following where he cites Psalm 8. And in verses 7 and 8 here, he's making that, just simply grabbing that psalm and referring to the dignity of humanity. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? And here it is. Well, here's the glory of being man, human. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. These great holy ones, the angels, the dignity of humanity is they're made just a little lower. Just a little lower order on the scale, if you will. And he says, you have put everything under his feet. The idea here is of men and women being created in the image of God. And created in the image of God, we are created to be, this is Genesis, his vice regents ruling over the world with him, sharing in his rule and expressing God's rule. This is the glory, if you will, of being human. 
made just a little lower than the angels and king over all creation. And this is simply what he's stressing here. The glory of being human, just a little lower than the angels. But you'll notice as you keep reading, even so, even though it is such a glorious thing in this sense to be human, even so, it is a failed humanity. And so he tells us in the next verse, yet at present we do not see everything subject to him. That is, humanity never achieved, really, its glory potential. Created to be God's vice regents, we failed. And clearly the reference here is back to Genesis chapter 3 and the awful fall. And part of the real tragedy of it was that man has not achieved the glory for which he was created. It would seem to be a failed project. And it's in this context then that Jesus is introduced to us in verse 9. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. That is, he's introduced to us here as something of our champion. That's the idea, verses 7 through 9 here. Man was created with this great, glorious dignity, created to be God's vice regent, but we've failed and we've fallen, and we've not realized our glory potential. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. And the idea is he's come as our champion, so as one of us to do for us and as one of us what we have failed to do ourselves he's come to be our champion it is very much a passage that stresses the God to the rescue theme that we find so often in the scriptures what we were unable to achieve he has come to achieve for us and very importantly he has come to achieve as one of us. Now this champion theme is an old one. The first prophecy of Jesus is presented in terms of a champion. Not just a savior, but specifically a champion. You remember the tempter had come. Adam and Eve had sinned. God calls them into account. And God says to the devil, there's coming one of the woman's seed, and he's going to crush your head and make you eat dirt. You're done. And the hope is born of this champion who will come to defeat the tempter. And the implication is to fix this mess that we've gotten ourselves into. And so the first prophecy of Jesus is of a champion who will come to do for us and as one of us what we had failed to do ourselves. And then this champion theme is, is borne out throughout the Old Testament, and we see samplings of it that arise. We find a David, we find a Joshua, we find these champions that pop up here and there, and they're all anticipations of this greater Joshua and this greater David who will come and win the day for his people. But what's important to recognize, and we'll see more of this as we go along, that it's not just simply a, in the 
capacity of a champion that he comes, but it's as a champion over Satan, coming specifically to deal the death blow to the tempter himself. He has come to be the destroyer's destroyer, if you will. And so Genesis 3.15, he will crush your head. The tempter, the one through whom sin has entered, will meet his ruin, and he will be defeated. Now that theme, of course, is picked up in, on many occasions in the New Testament. It would be well worth our while, but I don't have time. I'll run into John's time if I do, but it would be well worth our while. You can do this on your own to track out this Jesus coming against Satan theme in the New Testament. We find it in the Gospels. I made mention of one last night in Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus says that he's come to plunder the strong man's household. There's this great invasion of God's kingdom into the domain of Satan and he's ransacking his house and there's the, as I say, the invasion of God's kingdom into Satan's territory. Jesus speaks of it again in John chapter 12. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the prince of this world cast out. In verse 14, because we have flesh and blood, he himself also likewise took part of the same, the same blood and flesh. In verse 17, he was made like us in every way. The pioneer of our salvation, the forerunner, has gone ahead of us. He has blazed the trail for us from womb to tomb, blazing the trail for us. He became all that we are so that as our leader and as our champion, he would win back for us all that we had lost. Jesus, the champion, is very much the theme. Well, then very appropriately, in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, he reminds us that humanity is held captive by Satan. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You just can't read those verses without thinking back to Genesis chapter 3 in the garden where Satan came and tempted and brought humanity into sin and therefore into death. If you've read the New Testament very carefully, you can't read this without thinking also of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. And this whole idea of sin entering into humanity and because sin has entered Death has entered as the judgment upon sin and God's just punishment for it. And with all of that becomes, as he speaks of here, Satan holding us captive in this fear. The mother of all fears, the fear of death. Because we know death is coming and because we know death is the sentence for sin, and because we know standing behind that death sentence is the law, and behind that law is a God who is just and holy, 
who must punish sin. Death is a fearful thing. And he pictures humanity just caught up in slavery in this mother of all fears. He held us captive, Satan did. And the Lord Jesus, the writer here tells us, has come and by his death destroyed him. And it's fascinating then in verse 14... That the means by which Jesus destroys the tempter who brought death, the means by which he destroyed the tempter who brought death is his own death. He's come as our champion. He will defeat the tempter. But like the ancient prophecy said, he'll do it at some cost to himself. He'll bruise your heel. And we find here, that he defeats Satan who wields the power of death by means of his own death. John Bengel made a, a famous statement along these lines, something to the effect of in his own death, the Lord Jesus defeated death and therefore overcame the devil who wielded death. Salvation required, in other words, that we deal with a more important enemy than just Satan himself. And what is that? Well, what's the link here? Just how does Jesus' death destroy the power of Satan over us? What's the link? The answer for us is in verse 17. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. Why? in order that he might become a, a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, in my version here, it's make atonement for the sins of the people. I'm always a bit amused at the NIV when they translate this word that way, at make atonement. The word is propitiation, as many of you know. The translators were sure that you wouldn't understand the word propitiation. And so they translated, make atonement. And the ironic thing is, nobody knows what that means either. And of course, the idea of propitiation is that we stand as sinners under the wrath of God, as objects of his wrath. And Satan was not the only enemy in this sense against us. We have a greater and a problem that comes before that, and that is the problem of the justice and the wrath of God. The book of Hebrews stresses that at several points. Our God is a consuming fire. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it's because of this matter of divine justice and the threat of death for sin that Satan holds humanity in the fear of death. And this then takes us to the very heart of the meaning of Christ's death. He came to make propitiation. He came to appease God, to turn aside his wrath by absorbing that wrath himself. 
and bearing in our place the curse against our sin. God's justice is satisfied so that we are allowed to go free. In other words, first of all, before dealing with Satan, first of all, the atonement terminates on God. It is directed to him, first of all, to satisfy his demands, the demands of justice against us by means of the substitution of the Lord Jesus in our place. We love to speak of the atonement as an expiation for our sins, a removal of our sins, effecting forgiveness of our sins, that is, of the atonement terminating on us. And that's gloriously true. But it is true only because, first of all, the atonement terminates on God. His justice is satisfied. And because his wrath is turned away from us, having been absorbed by our substitute. Because he's satisfied, propitiated, then our sins are removed. The letter to the Hebrews is, of course, the great book in the New Testament that describes that for us in graphic detail. It speaks of the sacrificial system in so many different ways, teaching us that important lesson of the unapproachability of God. You can't go into the presence of this God. You have no right. Stay back. And through all of this mediation of a priest, and finally there's a way in, and it's through one high priest who makes his way once a year, only after certain preparations are made. And he can go in very carefully if he does it, just as prescribed. This is a very awesome thing. You have no rights. Stay back. And the lesson of the tabernacle is to show us that the way into the Holy of Holies was not yet. But it also told teaches us the principle, the principle, and the structure of substitution. That there there is a way that God can be appeased, that his justice can be satisfied, and this whole problem of sin can be removed, and we can be allowed into the presence of God. A fascinating expression of that in the book of Hebrews is Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 5 where it speaks of the mercy seat and it calls it the hilasterion, the mercy seat, the propitiatory, the place of propitiation. And it pictures this where the high priest would enter beyond the curtain once a year on the annual day of atonement and carefully sprinkle blood on the, on the top of the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat and he calls it the propitiatory. The place of propitiation. Here's where God is appeased. And here's our answer. How can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? Answer. There might be an acceptable substitute. Who could offer himself in place of the people. And his blood could be offered in the presence of God. And God would accept it. But of course there was something terribly inadequate. About the blood of bulls and goats. How could a blood of an animal actually make substitution for the sins of those created in God's image? And here he tells us, the glorious second person of the eternal Godhead, the one who is God himself, had to be made like his brothers in every way so that he would make propitiation for the sins of his people. He is the mercy seat par excellence. In other words, then, by his death, 
Sin is expiated. But only because first, by his death, sin is propitiated. And the order is, his atoning work terminates on God, propitiation. And because of that, his atoning work terminates on us, expiation. And now, because of that, his atoning work terminates on Satan. And his hold of us is broken. How? Because our sin is gone. How's that? Because God is satisfied. The sacrifice has been made. And this, the writer tells us, is why the God-man. He came as our champion to defeat our adversary by offering himself in our place to propitiate God on our behalf. Now, death is still an awful thing. There's no pretending otherwise. And the Bible makes no pretension of that. Death is still an awful thing. And there's nothing about it, death itself, that's desirable to any Christian. But you know, on another level, how can we fear death now that we know that satisfaction has been made in heaven, sin has been propitiated, the devil's grip is broken. It's changed everything. And this is the amazing message of the incarnation. God became man in order to bear his own wrath against our sin. He came to save us by bearing our sins in his own body on the tree. And it's a marvelous irony, as I mentioned earlier. By death, now, he destroys the one who has the power of death. Fascinating. Satan furiously manipulates events to bring about the cross and thereby brings out his own defeat. The one who wields death is destroyed by the death of our champion. And it's not only a marvelous irony, it is a wonderful flow of argument here in the writer's development of this book as well. Here is the one who is the glorious son of God, worshipped by angels. He is of the very highest order. He is God. Ah, but they might say, wait a minute, he was a man. He was lower than the angels. And the writer says, yeah, there's gospel in those woods, let me tell you. He became one of us in order as one of us and for us to do for us what we could never do ourselves. Finally then, notice how he expands both on the matter of Christ's priestly intercession and what it meant for Jesus to suffer as a man. First of all, look at verse 10. Our archegos, our leader, our pioneer, our forerunner, was made perfect through suffering. Fascinating statement, isn't it? Made perfect through suffering. 
How do you figure that? Isn't this the glorious Son of God? How could he be made perfect? Isn't he already perfect? Well, clearly here he's not speaking of any moral improvement, but he became our perfect substitute, perfectly one of us in suffering. That is, he is not just, if I can say it that way, he's not just one who took our humanity, as infinitely condescending as that is. He didn't just take our humanity generally, but he was made one with us also in our sufferings. And in that sense, he was made perfectly one of us. He took on himself weak, fallen humanity and partook of our sufferings even. And joined to us in our sufferings, he became like us in every way. And so he says in verse 18, because he himself suffered when he, is, he was tempted. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He experienced the temptations and the sufferings that we experience. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. That is, having paved the way as one of us, even in temptation and struggle and trials, now he is able to help us in our temptations and struggles and trials. And he's able to help us because he is a very experienced high priest. He has been where we are. And so, because he has been where we are, he is able to dispense exactly the grace that we need at every given point in our struggle and temptations and trials. You'll remember that he picks this up again in chapter 4. In verse 15, he says essentially the same thing, but expresses a little more fully. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. That is to say, we have one on the throne of heaven who can feel and understand all of the struggles and trials that we go through, and he understands and feels it, not because he's read it in a book, but he understands and feels it because he himself has been there as one of us. And as our Archegos, he has led the way successfully without sin. And what he's emphasizing here very simply is that you will never find yourself in any situation that is unique to yourself. The Lord Jesus has been there too. Particular items may be different in various ways, but the circumstances, the setting, not unique. He was in all points tempted like as we are. The struggles of loneliness, rejection, Pressure, opposition, family. Wherever we find ourselves, know that the Lord Jesus has been there. And in fact, he's been there successfully. 
and because he has been there himself. One, he's able to sympathize. And two, he's able to dispense exactly the grace that we need at that point. He knows exactly what is needed because he's been there. Many have wondered about this in reference to Jesus' impeccability. They've wondered if Jesus did not sin and if he never sinned, and in fact, if he could not sin, was his temptation real? And it misses something very important here that the writer is stressing. The point here is that his sinless success over temptation only made his temptations all the more intense. Because he could not and did not sin, he is able to sympathize with our temptation because at whatever point we find ourselves in that temptation, he has been there and he's been there successfully. We succumb to temptation long before we ever feel the full force of the tempter's power. We give in, temptation ends, the adversary wins. But Jesus, because he never gave in, he endured the temptation to its fullness, and he endured the tempter's power as no other human being has ever endured it. He was tempted and he was tempted, and Satan came after him with full force, and he came after him with full force, and Jesus never gave in. And the temptation, we're left to think, never stopped until the tempter himself wore out. He never reached breaking point. And so what he's stressing here is that Jesus, because he never gave in, Because he endured temptation to its fullest, he knows temptation better than you'll ever know it. Because we've all given in a lot sooner. We cannot sympathize with his temptations, but he can sympathize with ours. He never reached breaking point. Oh, the logic is something on a superficial level, something like this. Who would you rather take the exam for you, someone who's aced it before or someone like you? (laughs) Who would you rather help you train for an athletic event, someone who's done it, been there, succeeded and won the prize, or someone who missed the cut last year like you did? I remember one year... We were visiting some old friends that we hadn't seen in many years. And we're catching up, how are things and whatnot. And we finally got around, how's church? How are things at church? And they said, well, things are going well, but we're without a pastor at the moment, they said. And we've got two guys that we're looking at and talking to, and there's kind of a divide in the congregation. And they didn't mean a deep division in fighting, but just a division of opinion regarding these two pastors. And I said, well, what's the issue? And they said, well, the one pastor has a model family, just a model family, just a a wonderful guy and the the kind of family that it it ought to be. The other guy 
He's a good man and everything, but he's, he's had real trouble with his sons. And they've given him grief, and they're still, still really in the world. And part of the congregation thinks, well, that would be really nice to have a pastor who got those same troubles as we got. And maybe they can commiserate with us. I'm thinking, how do people think like that? Now, I'm not making any judgments on the man with the the lost children. I I realize that many a wise father has had a foolish son. I'm not making any judgments on it. But if it's help you're wanting regarding your family, wouldn't you rather have somebody with a proven track record? Does that make sense? And this is what we want and what we need in a high priest. When I face the strains and the pressures and the temptations, I don't want a high priest more or less like me who's been there and blown it. I know all about that. I want someone who has been there and has endured it successfully and has triumphed over the tempter. That one I know will have the ability to give me exactly the grace that I need at every point in my temptation. And so he says in chapter 4, well, chapter 2 in verse 18, because he has himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Or again, chapter 4 and verse 16 now, let us then approach the throne with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. That is, in all of the experiences of life, with all of its strains and pressures and temptations and all the opposition that comes from our adversary, we can go to the throne of heaven And there find a man, isn't that amazing? To the throne of heaven and find a very experienced man who as one of us has led the way, successfully triumphing over the tempter. And so one who knows exactly how to help and dispense exactly the needed grace at every point. And this is offered us then in the book of Hebrews in terms of something of an explanation as to why we persevere. We persevere very simply because we have a faithful high priest who perfectly sympathizes with all of our weaknesses and because he himself has been there successfully is able to provide for us just as needed at every point. This is why God became man. He became man in order to save us and to keep us saved and to lead us as our champion all the way to glory. Amen. Amen.